I'm Russell, and this is VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today is Monday, March 27th, 2023. Say please and thank you. Don't stand still in front of a door. Say hi and smile. Don't ask about salary. These are some of the unwritten social rules that Patrick King enumerates in his new book, Unspoken Social Rules and Etiquette, Uncommon Sense and How to Act. Today we present the chapter-by-chapter summary of Patrick King's book, Unspoken Social Rules and Etiquette. Part 1. Making Contact Treat everyone with politeness and kindness, not because they are nice, but because you are. Nicole Wharton Chapter 1. Greeting and Introductions You might think the word etiquette is hideously old-fashioned. In a world that more and more highly prizes individual personal expression and authenticity, it can seem like social rules are an outdated and repressive piece of history we've all moved on from. However, if you're reading this book right now, there's a strong chance you suspect that this is not true and never has been. Human beings are social at their core, but the paradox is that socializing doesn't necessarily come easily or automatically. Enter social rules about how we have all agreed to behave in social situations. True, these rules are never written down or taught at school, and yet we all know they're there, particularly when we break them. In the chapters that follow, we'll not only explore the very real and very important rules that hold this shared social fabric together, but we'll also look at exactly how to put them into practice in a world full of ambiguity, gray area, and imperfect people. Can a person live without all these unspoken social rules? Maybe. But by the end of this book, you may find yourself proving just how much of an advantage you can give yourself by mastering them. Becoming socially adept makes life easier, richer, and far more rewarding. The rules, you'll see, don't restrict human expression and flourishing, but enable it. If you're the kind of person who wants to be more likable, a better communicator, and more skilled at diffusing misunderstandings and conflict, then read on. Every culture on earth, at every historical period, has unanimously agreed on one thing. At the start of any encounter with another human being, people need to say hello first. The Victorians made a high art of introductions and greetings, placing enormous weight on what was said, how, to whom, and in what order. Today, more relaxed and modern cultures have fewer rules about how to open any social interaction, but there are always rules. This chapter may seem a blindingly obvious place to start, but the sad truth is that many people think they understand this basic fundamental skill and still get it wrong. Their biggest mistake? Simply forgetting to greet at all. Yes, even if you are shy or consider yourself an introvert, are nervous, or are having a bad day. Yes, even if you feel awkward and don't know how. Yes, even if they're the ones being rude first. Every greeting and introduction are a chance to show respect for the other person and give them a good impression of you. There's a reason people say first impressions matter, because they do. But one thing people forget is that first impressions are not just a chance for you to show who you are. They are a chance for you to graciously demonstrate that you are willing to have a good impression of the other person. It's worth dwelling on this point. In ancient times, when humans encountering a stranger was a rare and potentially dangerous situation, the tone they set in those first few seconds made all the difference in the world. The very first task in any social situation is to establish... Chapter 2. Etiquette in Public Social etiquette includes all the little things we do to avoid big things happening later on. 
Anytime people interact, there's an opportunity for friction or misunderstanding. Etiquette is the time-tested set of rules that we use to cut this possibility down to a minimum. You may be surprised to see some of the following etiquette rules in a book on socializing. What do sidewalks and doorways have to do with socializing? But if you've ever had that awkward moment when you bump into someone, stand on their toes, or get into an argument over a bus seat, you know that how we carry ourselves in public spaces is a big part of social interaction. Sidewalks Unless you live somewhere rural, and always will, you probably will encounter crowds trying to squeeze down narrow sidewalks and pavements. However, if everyone follows a few rules of etiquette and common courtesy, everyone will be able to get where they're going a little bit quicker. Here are some tips to keep in mind. Tip 1. Stick to your right. Think of the sidewalk like a street. Don't walk into oncoming traffic. Tip 2. Devices down, eyes up. Looking down to your smartphone is a recipe for disaster and a guaranteed way to make everyone in the street hate you. You could crash into another pedestrian, or even worse, a car or bus. Tip 3. Keep up the pace. Crowded sidewalks typically fall into a sort of default walking speed. Move closer to the buildings to rummage through a bag or answer a text or you're bound to get bumped. Even better if you can find a little nook, bench, or side street to step into and get out of people's way. Tip 4. Keep your squad in formation. If you're walking with a big group, spreading out four or five across, and taking up the whole sidewalk is bound to annoy and hinder your fellow sidewalk users. If you've been behind such an oblivious crowd before, you'll know how rage-inducing it is. Doorways Anytime the flow of traffic is restricted, your spidey senses should alert you to dial up the etiquette and become conscious of those around you. Tip 1. Let in the person behind you. If a door is getting a lot of traffic, making an effort to prop the door open for the person behind you is a courteous thing to do, and it keeps people moving. There's an exception, though. If the person behind you is a long way behind, you may cause more awkwardness holding it while they take another five minutes to get to you, no doubt feeling very self-conscious. Tip 2. If you're approaching a door that pulls open, pull the door open and allow the person you're walking with to enter first. If you're a gentleman who's been taught to open the door for a lady, feel free to do so, but don't feel like you need to make it into a big chivalrous display that you immediately expect acknowledgement and praise for. Whatever you do, don't get stuck in a game of a you first. No, you first. If the way is offered, graciously and quickly accept and move on. Tip 3. If you're approaching a door that pushes open, push the door open, entering first, and hold the door open for your companion. Pushing it open and waiting for them to go through might force some uncomfortable physical proximity. Chapter 3. Eye Contact Etiquette Well, you've behaved yourself in public and made that first greeting and introduction. Now what? Let's take a closer look at what some would argue is the most fundamental form of communication and the one to master first, eye contact. When eyes meet, two separate gazes come together, and two different conscious attentions are momentarily fixed together. With eye contact, it's about so much more than exactly how long you linger on this gaze. Rather, it's about understanding contact, i.e. intimacy, and how to play that up or down, depending on the context and your relationship to the person in front of you. It's crucial to distinguish between eye contact and staring. Staring is just plain rude and threatening, often done without blinking. But eye contact shows confidence, relaxation, and interest in the other person. It's the difference between gently touching something versus hitting it. Are you one of those people who finds eye contact extremely awkward? That's totally normal. Try to remember, 
eye contact equals intimacy. It's powerful stuff. So if you're feeling uncomfortable, you can't go wrong by pulling back and letting your gaze rest elsewhere for a moment. That said, used correctly and deliberately, eye contact can be a good way to gain social mastery and conscious control of any interaction. Here are a few tips. How much eye contact should you make? Avoid extremes. Both 0% and 100% of the time are going to make a situation awkward and fast. Aim for a comfortable 50%. How long should you hold eye contact? 4 to 5 seconds is a good ballpark figure. That said, don't get too hung up on counting in your head. Hold your gaze for the length of one relaxed inhale or exhale, and then allow your eyes to look at something else. When you do this, avoid a rapid flitter away and instead slide your eyes easily to the side or down, lest you come across as nervous or overly shy. When should you make eye contact? There's a reason people say, I see, when they mean, I understand. In a conversation, trying to make eye contact to show that you're listening while the other person is talking. Eye contact while you're speaking can be felt as too forceful if prolonged. What if it feels really awkward? Well, don't worry. Try the triangle technique. First, gaze at the person's eyes for a few moments, then pull away for a moment and look at either their nose or mouth, then return to the eyes after a few seconds. Basically, you imagine a triangle between their two eyes and their nose or mouth, and you flit your gaze between the three points whenever you feel a little awkwardness coming on. Without a doubt, the unspoken rule with eye contact is that it conveys intimacy, emotion, and interest. That means if you are perceptibly making more eye contact than the other person is, you're basically saying, I'd like to be closer to you. And if you're avoiding eye contact, you're saying, I'd like less intimacy. Thank you. But don't be thrown by the word intimacy, of course. As we'll see in later chapters, the foundation of all communication is physiological, and all communication stems from our more ancient mother tongue, which is body language. So much of our nonverbal communication is based on proximity, contact, and... Chapter 4. Small Talk Danger Zones Are you someone who says you hate small talk? Time to banish this expression from your vocabulary. It's a myth that small talk is inconsequential, stupid, boring, unnecessary, or difficult. Actually, it's a myth that there's anything small about it at all. Think of small talk as a non-negotiable warm-up. Without it, expect the big talk to be more fraught with danger and injury than it needs to be. All of this is to say that a big, unspoken rule in any human interaction is that you start small and work your way up. You go for the broad, easy, and simple first, and gradually you work your way to the specific, more challenging, and more complex as you go. Human relationships are built when people increase intimacy, i.e. slowly close the gap between them. But this cannot be rushed. Even two people who are madly in love, living happily ever after, had to first start with a hello and a little chit-chat about nothing in particular. Many people think that small talk is a hindrance, but it's actually what makes it possible to have the deep and meaningful conversations. Why? Because if you barge ahead and try to engage with someone on a very intimate level early on in a conversation— it's a little like rushing up to a stranger and giving them a kiss. It might work out for the best, but your chances of causing outrageous offense are probably far, far greater. What's more, this offense might be so great that you could permanently put off someone who might have actually wanted to give you a kiss at some point anyway. That's what small talk is about, lowering the chances of causing offense and increasing the chances of later connection and rapport. With that in mind, let's look at the topics and ideas that almost all cultures can agree are out of bounds when it comes to successful small talk. 
Sure, you might talk about these things with people once you know them better. In fact, gradually broaching these topics is a clear signal that you're closing that gap and creating more distance with someone. But unless you're at that point, try to completely avoid the following topics. 1. Appearances 2. Money 3. Sex 4. Politics 5. Religion Yes, yes, everyone knows that these are the most interesting things, but ignore this rule at your peril. Let's take a closer look. Appearances What's the best way to comment on someone's appearance? The answer is, there isn't one. Just don't do it, period. Clinical psychologist Dr. Desta suggests the five-second rule, which goes like this. You can comment on any aspect of someone's appearance if, and only if, they can change it in five seconds. If it would take them more than five seconds to change it, then hush, especially if the comment is based on your opinion. If someone has a little crumb stuck to the side of their face, you can comment on it since it will only take them a moment to address. If someone appears to be tired and disheveled, don't comment since they can't do much to fix any of that in just five seconds. If someone's necklace is on backward, you can say something. If someone is dressed too formally for the occasion, stay quiet. There's nothing they can do. Part 2. The Golden Rule is Respect Good manners reflect something from inside, an innate sense of consideration for others and respect for self. Emily Post You've navigated the social realm with situational empathy. You've made seamless and comfortable introductions and greetings. And you've begun a little small talk with just enough eye contact to build rapport and gradually, gradually close the distance between you and the person in front of you. Well done. It might not seem like much, but master these small skills and you'll be surprised at just how far-reaching the benefits really are. Let's move deeper now. And consider those situations where you already know someone and must now find a way to negotiate continued interactions with them. Whether in a professional or personal capacity, whether you see them once a year or every day, and whether you want to get them know them better, stay the same, or gently phase them out of your life, it's worth thinking about etiquette in terms of respect. Chapter 5 Punctuality is respect. You've heard that time is money, but time is valuable in other ways. Most things in life can be negotiated to some degree, but the resource we call time is fixed. We all only have a limited amount of it, and once it's gone, it's gone, and nothing anybody can ever do will bring it back. Time is like gold. Its value holds, and it is a perfect standard against which to compare many other values. This is why we'll start with an unspoken etiquette rule that tells us that punctuality is respect. That is, it's respect for someone else's time. When we pay attention to avoiding small talk danger zones, when we give people space to walk on the sidewalk, and when we are careful and conscientious with our eye contact, we are respecting people's lives and their personal space. When we are punctual and time-efficient, we are respecting their time limitations. By doing this, you build up your reputation for being a person who is honest, trustworthy, and respectful. The crucial thing about this kind of reputation, though, is that it's not about what you say, but what you do. Your character is made up of each and every little action you take, including the actions you don't take. That means that it's not enough to simply mean well and have good intentions. And it's not enough to just claim that you're a respectful person. When you're on time, you're not just communicating respect for the other person, but showing respect for yourself, too. You demonstrate that you are in command of the situation, that you are conscious and aware, and that you are able to plan and prioritize. You show others that you value your own time and don't intend to waste it, either. It's no surprise, then, 
that punctuality features so heavily in lists of etiquette rules. It's about planning and foresight. If you have many tasks to do in a day, and some of them are time-sensitive, take a moment to plan well before you need to do them or get ready. It only takes a few minutes to look at your to-do list for the day and predict how long each task will take and which ones are most important. Once you identified all your time obligations for the day, you need to be realistic, very realistic. People who struggle with time management usually have a special kind of optimism in that they always think things will be achieved in much less time than they realistically will. Chapter 6. The Power of Respecting Others' Opinions Today it's fashionable to talk about compassion, kindness, and empathy. The truth is, most of us are not even halfway to being genuinely kind and compassionate to one another and have yet to master the simpler challenge of civility, respect, and basic courteousness. Sadly, our world encourages and emphasizes divisions. We treat our own opinions as sacred and take as a human right our entitlement to not have to deal with people who hold different ones. We speak about tolerance as though it's something we grant others as a gift from our throne as the reigning good guy who just always happens to be right all the time. We say, you do you, and claim that people have a right to their opinions. But how many of us genuinely believe that? How many of us behave as though that were true? This is one area in which old-school etiquette might have the most to teach us. The big insight here is that respecting someone else's perspective literally costs us nothing. It does not mean we respect ourselves any less or believe in our opinion any less or are threatened in any way. It simply means that we are maturely acknowledging that other people are not the same as us and have the right to look at the world in a different way. Everyone has their own unique set of life experiences that prompt them to think and perceive things in a certain way. After all, this is exactly how you came to possess your unique worldview, isn't it? Truly polite, respectful, and mature people understand that it isn't a chore to try to appreciate difference. They may actively enjoy that the world is not filled with people identical to themselves. You don't have to agree with them or concede defeat or behave as though you're being attacked. Try it next time you encounter someone who doesn't agree with you. What does it feel like to just allow them to do that? You'll probably notice that it's a relief not to instantly feel compelled to respond, argue, evaluate, judge, defend, and so on. This can be a big revelation. All arguments and disagreements are optional. Do you want to have conflict with someone? Or would you rather have an interesting conversation with them in which you may even learn something? Back in the day, people were told, if you can't find something nice to say, then don't say anything. It sounds trite, but there's wisdom there. You don't have to argue with a person, judge them, goad them on, or be rude. Supremely gracious and self-possessed people have a way of rising above all that. Think of two dignified statesmen whose countries are literally at war. It doesn't mean they can't sit politely at a table and drink tea and appreciate a good tete-a-tete. They are self-possessed, non-reactive, and good-humored. You can be that way, too. And it starts with simply being aware that conflict is always a choice. You can't help that people are different and may disagree. But you have a lot of control over how you disagree. Many people are reluctant to respect others because they feel that they lose something in doing so. In fact, the opposite is true. When you conduct yourself with respect, you cover yourself in an aura that invites other people to treat you with the same consideration and graciousness. Take a look at some of these everyday examples. Someone you're talking to suddenly expresses the view that most men will... Chapter 7. Respecting Personal Space In a way, we've already discussed in previous chapters the concept of respecting space. 
when we're cognizant of eye contact and the closeness it implies, and when we respect people in public and shared spaces, we're dealing with the core of etiquette, mutual acknowledgement of and respect for personal space. You might think that this simply refers to the literal amount of space we leave empty around one another, but really there's our strong connections between psychological space and physical proximity. How close we hold our bodies in space is just a reflection of how close we are, metaphorically speaking. Think of your personal space as the air between your body and an invisible shield or bubble you've made around yourself. The distance between you and your shield probably changes from person to person, depending on things like how well you know the other person, the kind of relationship you have with them, how much you trust them, what you're currently trying to communicate, your culture and upbringing. Whether you live in a crowded or sparsely populated area, the immediate social context and environment. Being aware of personal space means you can use it as a factor in communication. In fact, this is the premise of proxemics. In the 1960s, anthropologist Edward Hall came up with the word proxemic zone and divided it into four main categories, the intimate space, the personal space, the social space, and the public space. The point is to be aware of what zone interactions are taking place in, as well as to learn how you can navigate changes from one zone to another and what those changes might signal. Often, a breach in unspoken social rules or an etiquette violation is the result or cause of one or both parties making an unwanted change in proxemic zone. Let's look at some examples. As a general rule, the closer the relationship, the smaller the distance. In the U.S., the average comfort levels of personal space looks like this. Around 0 to 20 inches for intimate couples, intimate space. Around 1.5 to 3 feet for good friends and family members, personal space. Approximately 3 to 10 feet for casual acquaintances and co-workers, social space. More than 4 feet for strangers, public space. Of course, this differs between cultures. Latin Americans and Middle Eastern cultures tend to be comfortable with smaller distances, whereas East Asian societies and North Americans tend to prefer a little more room. Likewise, city dwellers tend to tolerate far more proximity. Think about standing in queues or being on public transport than rural folks who might be used to being the only person for miles. Finally, there are unspoken rules about the optimal proximity between men and women and parents and children. For example, Middle Easterners may be more comfortable than average with tactile affection between friends, but only provided the friends are of the same sex. Between men and women, their preferred social distance is greater than average. The Intimate Zone the intimate zone is the space occupied by lovers, family members, and very close friends. It's also the space where contact sports occur, as well as things like massages and healthcare and even physical violence. This is naturally the most... Chapter 8. Having Respect for Boundaries Nowhere is the overlap between psychological and proximal space more obvious than when we talk about boundaries. However, when it comes to personal boundaries, they're just that, personal. It's always our duty to respect other people's boundaries. It's not our job to decide where those boundaries are on their behalf or to decide whether we agree with them. It's not for us to see if their boundaries make sense or match ours. It is not ever appropriate to negotiate with someone who has stated a boundary or see how we can maneuver around it. The unspoken social rule, one that is sadly broken all the time, is that you respect someone's boundary. No exceptions, no questions asked. That said, a boundary is never a demand. It's merely giving people the space they need to be themselves. If we walk up to a stranger and punch them in the nose, we've clearly crossed a boundary. But boundary violations can be far more subtle and complicated than this. 
Consider the following examples. Person A tells Person B they're busy, but Person B begs and pleads for their help anyway, asking again and again when Person A says they can't help. When Person A finally caves, Person B praises them for being a good friend. A husband goes into his wife's handbag to borrow a few coins for the parking machine. A sister barges into her brother's room without knocking first, and then, when he protests, she teases him about what he has to hide. A wife interrupts her husband to explain to his friend what he really means. A physiotherapist asks prying questions about his patient's sex life, then offers advice. A mother borrows her daughter's clothing and invites herself along to meetups with her friends. Any time we intrude on a person's physical body or personal space, encroach on their resources, including money, time, material things, make unrealistic demands, use guilt and shame to get our way, ignore the word no, or rush in to insert our own opinion, perspective, or need in a shared situation, we're breaking a boundary. Again, this comes down to a question of respect and being aware that other people because there are other people, may have boundaries and limits that we don't necessarily understand, agree with, or share. Nobody likes to think of themselves as a boundary breaker, but we can inadvertently do just that, even, and especially when, we think we're helping. Whenever we feel we know best, or that we wish to impose our perspective on a situation, we're violating others, even if only in small ways. Just as people are entitled to their own private bubble of personal space around their bodies, imagine that they are also entitled to the psychological, mental, emotional, and perceptual boundaries, too. Imagine that each person lives in their own little world, just like you, and harmonious communication depends on us recognizing this fact. Visualize one friend has another friend over for dinner. One friend keen to make a good impression and fulfill their need to be a good host, continually offers the other one food. The visitor declines again and again, and the host joyfully dismisses this and continues to offer food, drink, desserts. On the tenth offer, the visitor explains that they're trying to watch their weight, and the host immediately launches into several compliments about the visitor's figure. Part 3. Unspoken Rules of Engagement Sometimes the greatest adventure is simply a conversation. Amadeus Wolf Chapter 9 What the Flow Is and How to Go With It You meet someone and you just click. You're on the same wavelength. There's a good vibe and the chemistry just works. This is flow, that state where conversation feels effortless. The ironic thing about this effortlessness is that it takes some effort to achieve. Knowing the unspoken rules of etiquette will help you go far, since you'll avoid common pitfalls and prevent yourself from making the most obvious mistakes. But simply making sure you're not doing anything wrong is not the same as doing it right. Every conversation is unique. Every time two people get together and interact, something occurs that has never occurred before. Neither of the two know what will happen. They co-create the conversation. Flow is more like a spontaneous unfolding dance rather than a choreographed routine that is tightly controlled. And yet, those who are good conversationalists know that with a little practice and awareness, you can make these fascinating moments of connection more common. Right now, try to think of a person with whom you've had this elusive conversational flow. Chances are you didn't have to work to get the conversation going. It just took off, and you weren't even conscious of how you chose your words or questions. Once you have a person in mind, break down the conversation's flow. Who was this? Who began talking? Who said what? What was the conversation's length, setting, and backstory? When did the conversation take place? What time of day? month, year, and in what setting, for example, during a Christmas party at night. Did you know anything about the person before? 
Each of these questions will help you understand the unique context of this conversation and this person to achieve ideal conversation flow. Next, think of the most uncomfortable conversation you've ever had. You know the kind. You couldn't get anything off the ground. There were awkward, cringe-inducing silences or weird misunderstandings. Now, ask yourself the same questions you did about conversational flow. What do you notice? Comparing your answers side by side can be revealing. Can you spot any recurring themes? Write down your immediate thoughts and see if you can identify certain factors that act as that secret conversational ingredient. Perhaps you've noticed a few things. Great conversations seem to happen when you least expect them and on the spur of the moment. They happen when people seem to be feeling good about themselves. There's a certain lively back and forth with no single person dominating. It did not go the way you expected it to. It happened when both people felt confident, safe, calm, and inspired. What does all this tell you? Well, many people think that being a good conversationalist is a performance rather than a collaboration. They think that in order to make others like them, they need to be witty, charming, intelligent, knowledgeable, interesting, sexy. But the truth is, none of that really matters. If you go back and look at your most successful conversations, they had nothing to do with finding the winner or impressing someone with a carefully rehearsed story in which you were the hero. Chapter 10. Honoring the Rule of Reciprocation In his now well-known 1984 bestseller, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, Dr. Cialdini outlined what he saw as the six principles of persuasion, scarcity, authority, consistency, liking, social proof, and reciprocity. His theory on reciprocity has since heavily informed marketing and sales strategies, but the framework is applicable to many other forms of human interaction. The rule of reciprocity is the idea that when someone gives you a gift, whether it's an object, a kind deed, or an act of generosity, you automatically repay it or do something nice in return. People from all cultures have a strong desire to return gifts or favors with gifts of their own. This urge comes out in things like responding to party invitations, Christmas cards, birthday gifts, or acts of kindness. This way of doing things has existed for as long as human societies have because it helps us survive. Archaeologist Richard Leakey says that this system of giving and getting is at the heart of what makes us human. We are human because our ancestors learned to share their food and their skills in a network of honorable obligations. And cultural anthropologists Lionel Tiger and Robin Fox say that our web of debt is a valuable tool that allows for the division of labor, the exchange of goods and services, and the creation of clusters of interdependencies that tie us together in highly efficient causal units. There are three types of reciprocity. Generalized reciprocity. This form often involves exchanges amongst families or friends. There is no expectation of a return favor. Instead, people simply do something for another based on the belief that if the situation were reversed, the other person would do the same thing for them. This type of reciprocity is related to altruism. Balanced reciprocity. This type involves a calculation of the value of the exchange and an expectation that the favor will be returned within a specified time frame. For example, someone might exchange something they have, whether it's a skill or tangible item, for something of perceived equal value. These calculations may be more or less conscious and communicated. Negative reciprocity. This form of reciprocity happens when one party involved in the exchange is trying to get more out of the deal than the other person, which obviously feels manipulative and undermines the spirit of things. Selling a much-needed item at an inflated price is one example of negative reciprocity and is likely to generate feelings of hostility and mistrust. 
Marketers use a wide range of methods to get people to buy their products. Some of them are easy to understand, like sales, coupons, and special offers. Others are much sneakier and use psychological tactics that most people remain in the dark about. For example, a company might make a big deal about giving something for free to a prospective customer, knowing that human nature will press on that person to feel as though they now owe the company in some way, i.e., a future sale. But if we put sales and marketing tactics squarely in the negative reciprocity category and move on, we can use our knowledge of the other kinds to better understand unwritten social rules and learn more about etiquette in general. Chapter 11, Gratitude, Manners, and Kindness Few people make the connection between compassion, gratitude, and manners. We tend to think of kindness as something saintly, generous, and warm, whereas we may see manners as something polite, stiff, and ultimately fake. But really, they're the same concept, only expressed in different ways. Compassion, gratitude, and good manners all have significant overlap. If we have genuine empathy and consideration for our fellow human beings, we're able to think about them and their needs. We engage with them in reciprocal give and take. And when we say thank you to them, we pause to really experience that moment of gratitude. Think of manners as a kind of social scaffolding onto which you can build real feelings of both gratitude and generosity. Hint, they come from the same place. Grateful people are more likely to feel appreciative in a wider range of situations and recognize the good deeds of others. When you're thankful for something and truly receive it as a gift, you're giving the gift of that gratitude and happiness to the people who have helped you feel that way. And everyone loves to feel needed like this. Psychologists Dr. Robert A. Emmons of the University of California, Davis, and Dr. Michael E. McCullough of the University of Miami were the first to compile fascinating research on the power of gratitude. But more and more research is proving that being thankful has positive effects on just about every area of life. This creates a positive, self-reinforcing feedback loop. The more gratitude we show, the better we feel, and the less likely we are to take things for granted or complain, and the more likely we are to be grateful. Plus, the more grateful we are, the more inclined others are to help us, since they can tell that their efforts really do make a difference. How we show gratitude depends a lot on the social situation. For example, taking a partner to their favorite restaurant to thank them for their support might be a good way to show gratitude, but it obviously wouldn't be a good way to show gratitude to a stranger who held a door open for us. The feeling of happiness and gratitude is the same, and it's genuine. But etiquette and manners are the rules that dictate how we express that feeling appropriately. Gratitude causes generosity causes gratitude. Polite, courteous people tend to have an aura of positivity about them. When you stop to really notice just how much you have to be thankful for, it seems to grow in your awareness. By simply acknowledging these things and saying thank you out loud, you seem to increase them, and the more you believe you have, the more likely you are to want to share it with others. This is how gratitude can foster feelings of generosity, which, in turn, creates give-and-take dynamics with others in which there is yet more to be thankful for. Start with gratitude. This goes far beyond just saying thank you. Turn your awareness outside of yourself and notice all the little things that occur in your life that don't necessarily have to be there, but are. The clear blue sky. A delicious cup of hot coffee. The parcel you ordered, arriving at your house on time. Your colleague taking the message for you while you were out. Your partner remembering to pick up your favorite snack at the store. A bird singing outside the window. These days... The Gratitude Journal idea is well known. Chapter 12. Humor Etiquette Imagine a person who is sociable, charming, and good in conversations. Are you imagining someone quite entertaining and funny? A good sense of humor 
is like magic fairy dust. It relaxes you, removes the stress from a situation, and has the potential to turn tense moments around to your benefit. That wonderful sense of flow and connection are turbocharged when people are laughing and having a good time. A person who can laugh at themselves and get others to laugh will be perceived as confident, likable, fun, and even attractive. A sense of humor is a kind of social display that communicates an ease with life and a certain resilience and good health. It is positively magnetic. However, because humor is such potent stuff, it's easy to get things wrong. <laughs> Very wrong. If you've ever had a big argument that began with the words, but it was only a joke, then you know how badly wrong that can be. The only way to truly understand humor is from the perspective of the person being joked about. Yes, making jokes and being funny is something you do to put yourself at ease and make yourself look good. But the moment you make others feel uncomfortable, you have failed. It doesn't matter how funny you think something is or how unreasonable you think the other person is for not agreeing with you. Don't be that person who stubbornly insists that they just have a dark sense of humor, or that other people are merely too sensitive or don't get you. A pretty obvious unspoken rule is that if other people aren't laughing, you're not being funny, you're just being rude. According to Steve Wilson, who is a self-titled joyologist, comedian, and psychologist, there are seven golden rules for wielding a charming sense of humor without the risk of alienating or upsetting people. He considers humor the shock absorber of life. Rule one, when in doubt, leave it out. Just like with compassion, be aware of who you're talking to. Know who they are, what they like, and what amuses or impresses them. Also, be aware of the dynamic between you both, your relative positions, and the degree of formality of the situation. Context is everything. Using humor that's at odds with your position will hit awkwardly. Jokes that land well with your friends may flop with family or customers. Inside jokes are seldom amusing for those who are not party to their creation. The rule of thumb is this. If you're not sure whether what you're about to say is inappropriate, err on the side of saying nothing. Rule 2. Timing is key. What's tragic one moment can be pretty funny two weeks later, but when joking about potentially sensitive matters, it's best to wait rather than make fun of something when it's too soon. Humor can lighten dark moods, but you have to be really careful. If you can see the humor in a bad situation, but you're unsure, you could gently suggest, I can totally see us laughing our heads off about this in about two weeks' time. And better yet, first, wait for an indication from the other person that they're ready to start laughing about a difficult topic. Rule three, don't make fun of people. Chances are... Part four... When things don't go to plan. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis. Chapter 13. Navigating Social Misfires. Here's a riddle. What does everyone love to give, but nobody wants to receive? Unsolicited advice. Do you sometimes give advice that wasn't asked for? If most of us were being honest, we'd say yes. It's not like we're sitting there lecturing people and telling them how to run their lives. But we'd nevertheless make suggestions and observations about what someone else should do without thinking whether it's what the other person actually wants or needs. Avoid unsolicited advice. The unspoken rule for advice and suggestions is this. It's not your intention that counts but how you're perceived. In other words, no matter how well-meaning we think we're being, giving advice that isn't wanted can feel annoying, rude, and even manipulative by other people. 
Unsolicited advice can be very obvious and direct, but also pretty subtle. It can come across as pretty harmless, but it can also seem passive-aggressive or make you seem condescending. The irony is that in our assuming we know best about a person's situation, we immediately shut down and stop truly listening. Our empathy flies out the window. There is an asymmetry here. Most of us don't want people to talk at us and expound on what we should do. Yet most of us find it tempting to do this very thing to others. It is impolite and arrogant to insert one's ideas and opinions into someone else's world. It conveys an unearned air of superiority because it presumes the advice giver knows what is correct and the advice receiver is somehow ignorant, mistaken, or helpless. Yep, it can be really annoying. Good etiquette and manners require us to be mindful of our primary role in conversation, to connect and create rapport. It is not to educate someone, help them, guide them, or preach so they see the light and come round to what we already know to be true. Approach conversations with this attitude, and you will bore and alienate people, even if you don't outright say, here's my advice. By the way, someone telling you their problems is not the same as them asking for your advice. It is very seldom a request for a solution or a lecture. Almost always, people share their challenges because they want to be heard and understood, to be validated, and to have someone support their difficulty. It's this that allows them to process their problems themselves, not advice. Too many good relationships are derailed by a subtle but disruptive power dynamic that expresses itself in unsolicited advice. Often, people create distance, misunderstandings, or awkwardness when one or both overstep and take on this advice-giving role. To avoid this, consider a few more unspoken rules when engaging with other people's problems. Show unconditional positive regard, non-judgment, compassion, and empathy. This is your first duty. Simply listen and validate their experience by asking questions to help you understand. Many people unconsciously treat a show of vulnerability in others with a strange glee. Chapter 14. The Art of Saying No Nicely At some point, you will be the one to issue that rejection. Bearing in mind how horrible it can be on the receiving end of rejection, even tiny rejection, be especially mindful here of conducting yourself with respect and kindness and communicating as clearly as possible. Declining an Invitation Have you ever been invited somewhere but were unable to accept? Well, an invitation is just that, an invitation, not a summons. That means you're always, always entitled to turn it down if you wish. That is, as long as you do so in a way that is sincere, follows proper protocol, and shows respect for the person who extended the invitation to you. As with so many unspoken etiquette rules, the right behavior becomes clear when you put yourself in the other person's shoes. They invited you for a reason. They want you to be there. This can be easy to forget. We may assume that the invitation doesn't mean much, or that we were invited out of politeness. We might imagine that we won't be missed. But think about any party you've hosted. Even if it was an enormous guest list, you probably felt disappointed when someone couldn't come. If they simply ignored the invitation entirely and never pitched up, you were probably quite hurt, right? The most important thing is to respond to any invitation as quickly and courteously as possible. Letting people know the day before whether you can come or not signals a strong disrespect for their time. Extending an invitation to someone is an act of good faith. When you're careless with it, people will feel snubbed. And this doesn't just apply to formal things like invitations to weddings. The size of the event is irrelevant. If you are genuinely unsure if you can attend, don't make the host wait. 
communicate this to them so they can adjust their expectations and don't feel strung along or dropped at the last minute. Another unspoken rule is a little like the rule for gifts. You always say thank you. Yes, always. You're not thanking the person for the enjoyment you may or may not get out of the occasion. You're thanking them for the courteousness they have shown inviting you. Today, it's a popular hobby to complain loudly and often about how much of an introvert you are and how you cannot bear to go out and socialize. Life is hard. Schedules are busy. People don't always have the energy to get dressed up, leave their homes, and be cheerful and chatty. But then think about it another way. Your host has overcome this understandable inertia and hosted an event anyway. And they were kind enough to consider including you. This is what you thank them for. If you are attending, great, say so. Ask for any details if you're unsure, and be on time. If you can be there, then there are few things to bear in mind if you want to say no, but with courtesy and consideration. Keep your communications simple, clear, and honest. This means that it is actually quite rude to go on and on at length about all the reasons you can't attend. You might feel nervous or guilty and like you need to explain, but if you over-explain, it comes across as making excuses, and you may cause offense if you continue to labor the point. Don't make up. Chapter 15. Apology Etiquette You didn't mean to, but you're only human. And you've done something that's upset someone else. Uh-oh. What now? Well, there's good news and bad news. Having to say you're sorry puts you in a difficult position. But the good news is that if you handle it correctly, your relationship with that person could actually be stronger afterward. That's because a good apology shows maturity, respect, remorse, and a genuine understanding and that can open doors to a deeper connection with someone. The way in which you deliver your apology and the subtle nuances in the language you use play an important part in how it is received. There's no magic in the words, I'm sorry, or please forgive me. Rather, we convey our sense of regret and true desire to fix things up with everything else that surrounds those words. The big unspoken rule here, of course, is that you should, in fact, apologize. Never assume that one is not needed. Never assume that you don't have to apologize if you feel bad enough yourself, or if it was an accident, or if the other person has also hurt you in some way. If you're in the wrong and you've caused harm, then an apology is necessary. That said, a badly formulated apology can be worse than none at all. We've all experienced that sorry-not-sorry sorry kind of apology that actually inflames hurt feelings. If you've ever started an apology with, I'm sorry, but then you already know how utterly useless it is at making other people feel better. Let's say you asked a friend to stay at their family's summer house, and they agreed, but asked you to not invite too many others since the place is filled with delicate antiques. You secretly held a party there anyway, and as a result, a drunken guest tripped over a side table and smashed a priceless porcelain vase that belonged to your friend's great-grandmother. There's no two ways around it. You messed up and owe your friend an apology. Here's how not to apologize. You text your friend and tell her the bad news emphasizing how you never meant it to happen and how awful you feel now, but that it's the other friend's fault, and you really hope she can forgive you. Then, when she's icy with you, you get irritated and keep asking, Why are you still upset? What do you want me to do? I can't go back in time, you know. Let's look at a better way to do it. The Six-Step Apology As it happens... There is a handy formula to make sure that your apology is the best it possibly can be. 
Roy Lewicki is a professor emeritus of management and human resources at the Fisher College of Business at the Ohio State University, and he claims that there is a narrative framework that every excellent apology ought to follow. Lewicki is a renowned authority on the art of negotiating and spent years studying what constitutes an apology. He came to the realization that it, like any other tale, needed to adhere to a specific structure. When it does, it lands well and smooths over conflict, allowing people to move on. Take a look at the six components he recommends, including Expression of Regret First, you need... You've just listened to VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? This is your host, Russell, reminding you to join us next week for the preview of our next featured audiobook. Thanks for joining us, and have a great week.